today on FHL, we have a special guest, Mr. Aaron Mate from the Greytown. Hey, Jackie. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. I also have my co-host, RJ, with me. Hi, how are you? All right. Let's just jump into it. The first question I would like to ask pertains to... Actually, let's just jump into the OPCW situation, because I have a feeling a lot of people who follow Fred Hampton Leftist may not be aware, simply because mainstream media absolutely refuses to cover it, because they're stuck in Russiagate, Syriagate mode. (laughs) So... Would you mind giving a brief summary of what the whistleblowers at the OPCW discovered? Yeah. In April 2018, you have video coming out of the Syrian town of Douma of dead bodies. And the insurgents who controlled Douma at the time claim that there was a chemical attack by the Syrian government. And without any chance for any OPCW inspectors to come into Syria to investigate, the U.S., joined by the U.K. and France, bombed Syria. And once again, we're told this is a case of the Syrian government using chemical weapons against its own people. Then the OPCW gets into Douma and they conduct an investigation. And about one year later, in March 2019, they put out a report saying that there are reasonable grounds to believe that a chlorine attack occurred. And the inference of the report, if you read it closely, is that Syria was guilty. So basically, it aligns with the U.S. government narrative that Syria was guilty of a chlorine attack in Douma. But then we get a trove of leaks showing a massive deception. And these leaks show that the actual team that went to Duma reached pretty much the opposite conclusion of what was put out in public in their name. And that conclusion was that there was no evidence of a chemical attack in Duma. There were major inconsistencies in the allegations around chlorine gas. And if you read the report, the original team's findings closely, there's plenty of material there to bolster speculation that this whole thing was staged by the insurgents on the ground, which just from a logical point of view makes sense because for the Syrian government to use chemical weapons in Douma would make no rational sense. It would make no military sense. The only consequence would be to invite U.S. military intervention. So why would Syria do the one thing that would invite a U.S. military attack on their country, which is use chemical weapons? And the findings of the original team that were censored bolster that. Uh, By the way, there's also evidence that there's a hospital uh, scene in Douma where people were filmed and the White Helmets, which is a group funded by governments, including the US and UK, there's evidence that this scene in the hospital was staged. And a BBC reporter named Riam Delati looked into that and says that he has conclusive proof that this hospital scene was staged. So if the hospital scene was staged and you have the OPCW inspectors finding no evidence of a chemical weapons attack, in Duma, that's pretty convincing evidence that this whole incident was staged. And the leaks revealed also that instead of putting their findings out to the public, basically the, the original team was censored, that their findings were doctored. The OPCW first tried to put out a bogus report in their name. The original team thwarted that, but then soon basically all of them were replaced, and that led to this uh, deceptive final report. So that's what the leaks show, and there's just so much sabotage and deception that took place uh, behind the scenes. And what's amazing is that, you know, look, like usually in cases like this, when it comes to pro claims that are used to justify war, we can only go off of our natural skepticism. Like, why would a government do the one thing that would invite U.S. military intervention? Is there real evidence for the claims that our government is making? In this case, we have the actual evidence. We have the actual findings of the original team that were censored. 
And we also have the evidence that those findings were covered up. So it's really an extraordinary story, which makes it just crazy that our media hasn't covered. And it's up to outlets like us, like, you know, who are on the smaller outlets on the left that are doing the job of trying to tell the public about what happened. So, okay, I have so many questions when it comes to that. Like, what makes the U.S. think that we're like world cops? And even if he had bombed Syria, that we have the right to go in? Like, shouldn't that have been a U.N. decision? Things and other questions like, why are we so like, what happened to real journalism? Like back in the days of like Woodward and Bernstein, when we had people that could actually come on mainstream media and expose things like this. And now it's up to you. And I feel like you're just like yelling into the void and everybody's telling you to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, look, uh, that's a great question. The U S asserts the right of a global mafia, Don, where it has the right to bomb countries at its, you know, when it wants to and based on its own standards. And so, yeah, it's true. Even if, it was somehow true that Syria was guilty of a chemical attack. It still would not give the U.S. right to bomb Syria. The reason why these chemical attack allegations are fabricated, basically, is to try to whitewash the dirty war on Syria that the U.S. was a major participant in. And that's another case of the U.S., according to itself, the right of a global mafia boss. You know, no Syrians voted to have the CIA spend billions of dollars a year. According to the Washington Post, one dollar out of every $15 in the CIA's budget to flood Syria with weapons and jihadist contras from around the world to wage a catastrophic dirty war. But the U.S. Uh, assigned itself the right to do that because it just because that's that's what an empire does. And so allegations like the fact that like this claim that Assad uses chemical weapons, they're being used to help advance the dirty war because to help sustain something so destructive as flooding a country with weapons and fighters, you need to come up with excuses in the same way that the U.S. needed to come up with pretext for invading Iraq, that Saddam Hussein was going to destroy the U.S. with weapons of mass dis- destruction. In the same case of Syria, we need to wage a dirty war. We need to impose these murderous sanctions because this dictator gasses his own people for the fun of it. It doesn't make any sense. And there's even evidence that undermines it. But these narratives are being used to justify our own criminality. That's what they serve. RJ, do you have a follow-up question? If not, I have a hundred. Go go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I have to like narrow it down to the one that I want to ask. Okay. So speaking of everything that you just said, I feel like the way the U S gets away with it, at least with its own citizens is through peer propaganda, basically using the mainstream media to tell whatever narrative they want the citizens to believe to justify whatever it is they were going to do anyway, almost like the U.S. is playing real life risk. So my question is, do you, why do you think tactics like McCarthyism work into like that was in the 50s? This is 2021. <laughs> why are we still believing this shit? Like it's it's very plain. I thought after the 80s, we were like, OK, that would never work again. But here we are 40 years later and it's still working. Like, why do you think those tactics are so effective yeah. when the mainstream media does it? Well, if you remember, remember during the presidential campaign between Obama and Romney and Romney and Obama had that debate and Romney called Russia our biggest geopolitical foe. And then Obama made fun of him. Right. Obama mm-hmm. said the 1980s called they want their foreign policy back. And the Democrats promoted that. Yeah. You know, all these Democrats, Madeleine Albright, they all made videos, you know, make, uh, le- scoffing at Romney for saying that. And what's happened since then? They've all adopted Romney's perspective. Madeleine Albright even said that we owe an apology to Mitt Romney. Uh, 
so what happened since then? Well, I mean, you can the obvious answer is Russiagate, where Russia was used as a scapegoat for the election of Donald Trump. And neoliberal Democrats used used Russia to deflect from their own failures in giving rise to Trump. But I think it actually starts even before that, because that comment by Romney was made in, what, 2012? What happens after that? You have Russia intervening in the Syrian dirty war, where the U.S. spends all this money to support jihadist Contras, and it looks like they're going to win. The U.S. poured in anti-tank missiles into Syria, and that helped al- that it basically helped al-Qaeda capture the province of Idlib. So the insurgents in Syria were advancing, and Russia, because in the words of John Kerry, Russia didn't want a Daesh government, an ISIS government. Russia intervened in 2015. John Kerry made this admission in a, uh, in a leaked recording, conversation he, he had with Syrian opposition activists, where he said the reason Russia came in is because, quote, they didn't want a Daesh government, right? So that's why Russia came in, because Kerry also said the U.S. was sitting back and watching as Daesh ISIS was advancing on Damascus. And what Kerry said was that we were we were thinking that ISIS's advance would put Assad in a weaker position and force him to negotiate his way out of power. So basically what Kerry was saying there was that the U.S. was consciously leveraging the spread of ISIS, the growth of ISIS, for its regime change goals. So Russia came in to stop that. And when Russia was successful because it had air power in stopping the advance of ISIS and al-Qaeda and other jihadist groups, that infuriated the national security state because that was Russia interfering with their pet project. Like John Brennan was the head of the CIA at the time. This was his baby, that timber sycamore. Uh, they were in Hillary Clinton too. So Russia drew increased U.S. animus because of this. And there also was what happened in Ukraine where in 2014, the U.S., you know, Joe Biden, John McCain, Victoria Nuland, they backed this Maidan coup which overthrew the Yanukovych government in Ukraine. And that set off this proxy war in Donbass in eastern Ukraine between Ukrainians who are aligned with Russia and the Ukrainian government in Kiev, the the coup government that was aligned with the U.S. And Russia came in and seized Crimea because Russia was concerned that Ukraine was going to join NATO. And that also infuriated, you know, the national security state because they hadn't, the U.S. is so arrogant. It's so arrogant. And I guess you have to be arrogant to be an empire that they didn't foresee that, of course, like when you have a military, a Russian military port in, inside Ukraine and you don't want to see the country next to you become a part of a hostile military alliance, of course, you're going to react. But they didn't foresee that because of the arrogance of empire. And so when basically Russia did that, took Crimea, supported the forces in eastern Ukraine to fight back against the coup, that also infuriated the national security state in Washington. And that also, but that background also is behind the impeachment of Trump, where he briefly froze military sales to Ukraine, which also infuriated uh, the national security state, because that's, you know, we're supposed to be fighting a proxy war in uh, Ukraine, not trying to scale it back, according to their demented worldview. So that's the background, I think, to what has fueled this McCarthyism, and certainly went into hyper overdrive with Russia in 2016, where Russia was used to deflect responsibility on the part of the neoliberals for the fact that they lost to a clown like Trump. And that interest converged with the national security state who like couldn't believe that Trump was saying nice things about Vladimir Putin. If you read their testimony, James Clapper, Andrew McCabe, all these people, you know, all the key figures behind Russiagate and the intelligence community, they were like suspicious of Trump and they assumed he was a Russian agent just because he was talking about cooperation with Russia. And they just couldn't believe that there could be some benign explanation for that. So it was this converging, this convergence of Cold War chauvinism 
with neoliberal failure that I think made McCarthyism resurgent. And what's amazing is that they were successful and not just enlisting, you know, neoliberals like Hillary Clinton and MSNBC into their deranged fantasy that there was a Trump-Russia conspiracy, but progressives too. And the reason why that I think that caught on is because of the trauma of Trump. People were understandably afraid of Trump. And instead of looking at U.S. dysfunctions, how U.S. failures, a failed neoliberal system, failed U.S. militarism, how all these factors could give rise to a monster like Trump. It was very convenient for everybody to just blame it on an external actor like Russia, which thus then requires no self-reflection and hyper-focus on this external enemy, hyper-focus on Russian oligarchs, not American oligarchs. And so that's why I think, you know, McCarthyism has once again become fashionable. And it's amazing every time we see a so-called progressive buy into it. So basically it's the U.S.'s own narcissism and complete lack of an ability to self-reflect. Not to be reductionist, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's profitable. Like, if you're an American oligarch who has a stake in the U.S. media system, how much more would you rather us talk about Russian oligarchs and us blaming Russian oligarchs for our problems than American oligarchs, you know? So it's completely self-interested. And that's what it is. It's like, it's why I call Russiagate a privileged protection racket, because it's just convergence of all these different privileged sectors propping this thing up for their own power. So in the case of the national security state, profitable for them, and it serves their interest to demonize Russia, you know, conflict with Russia is bad for world peace, I think, conflict between two nuclear powers. It's very, very profitable for the weapons industry, which depends on having perpetual conflict with countries like Russia. For American media outlets that gave Trump endless publicity, you know, that profited off of his campaign, it's much more convenient for them to focus on Russian social media ads and allegedly hacked emails uh, than it is on their own role in giving the rise uh, to Trump. And Democratic neoliberals who ran one of the worst campaigns in history, Hillary Clinton didn't even go to Michigan and Wisconsin, much easier to talk about this fantasy of Russian social media ads fooling voters to vote for Trump or to not vote in Michigan or Wisconsin than to talk about why Hillary Clinton didn't campaign in Michigan or Wisconsin. That's because her economic record was so unpopular there, a record that Trump was able to take advantage of. So it's this convergence of all these cynical, powerful interests, all guided by profit and the mutual benefit of not having any self-reflection at all. I have another question we could transition to that's basically a continuation of everything you said right there. And it was about your Substack article about the accused Russian spy Kalemnik. Why does the United States media have such a fear about accused foreign spies using polling data to flip elections when the data that was used was already public information? Yeah, look, it doesn't make any sense. It's a conspiracy theory. You know, we, we talk a lot about QAnon. Well, this is BlueAnon. This idea that even if all the claims made about Kalemnik were true, and by the way, there's so much evidence showing that they're not, which I documented uh, in my article. Even if they were all true, this notion that somehow a... Russian getting polling data that was mostly public from the Trump campaign, how then could that possibly be used to influence U.S. voters? That's the official conspiracy theory, that Kalimnik got this polling data from Trump and then handed it over to Russia, and Russia somehow used this polling data for their interference campaign to sway American voters. If you look at the actual reality of what this supposed interference campaign actually was— it was a bunch of dumb social media ads that weren't even about the election. It was these dumb memes about like, you know, Jesus arm wrestling memes and Yosemite Sam. It was a troll farm. It was a dumb troll farm basically trying to get clicks as troll farms do. Barely any content about the election and barely even shown in the swing states. And the notion that a Facebook ad could swing a single voter, you know, let alone like the election is just so ridiculous. It's so laughable. But 
because Russiagate is profitable and useful to a elite conspiracy theory, everyone is just supposed to accept it on faith and not questioning its underlying premise. And when I showed evidence showing why this story about Kalimnik is so stupid, this idea that he's a Russian spy, there's so much countervailing evidence, it doesn't make a blip. And that's how Russiagate has operated from the beginning. It's like this explosive claim is made, whether it's the P-tape, whether it's Michael Cohen going to Prague, whether it's you know Russia uh, um, infiltrating the power grid in Vermont. And, like You can go on and on and on. There's so many extraordinary claims that were made that grab media attention for a day. And then once the countervailing evidence comes up, they just they ignore that basically and move on to the next fraud. It's a conspiracy theory. And conspiracy theories are basically fail-proof because in this case, it has the backing of so many powerful members of the establishment in Congress and in the media. What do you think of the G7 summit that happened just recently? Because Russiagate has really started to come back into the mainstream media ecosphere as a weaponization against Trump, but also to make sure that Biden somehow uh, is tougher on Russia than in Trump in their eyes. So really, I guess what I'm asking is, is from that perspective, how do you feel? Well, do you think their efforts on Russiagate will be successful with Biden the same way with Trump or no? Well, it's interesting. I always said that I didn't think that Biden would be more hawkish on Russia than Trump because the reality of the Trump administration that whatever Trump wanted to do personally, you know, he talked about having better relations with Russia on the campaign trail. And I bet that he meant it. But what happened when he came to office? He was accused of being a Russian puppet. And he also appointed all these neocon hawks around him, you know, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo. So he basically went along with every single neocon agenda item. You know, he tried to sabotage the construction of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline between Russia and Germany. He pulled out of the INF Treaty, a very key Cold War treaty reached between Gorbachev and Reagan. He almost killed the New START Treaty, which is the last remaining treaty limiting the nuclear weapon stockpile of the US and Russia. And that was about to expire. But Biden came into office and his first major act in foreign policy was to renew it. So I always thought that there was no way that Biden would be more hawkish just because the neocons around Trump were just so extreme. Like Pompeo, it doesn't get more extreme than that. And that's proven to be correct. Biden came in. He renewed that nuclear treaty with Russia. He also dropped Trump's sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. And the irony is if Trump had done the same thing that Biden did, the media would have gone crazy and accused him of being a traitor. But now because Russiagate doesn't have the political use, it doesn't provide the media with a basically fake way to oppose Trump. Because again, the media is not really going to oppose Trump on his actual policies. When he cuts taxes for the wealthy and corporations, gives the largest upward transfer of wealth in U.S. history, there's a little bit of a blip, but not really because those policies are actually what the establishment favors anyway. So they have to find a way to pretend like they are opposing Trump without actually really opposing him in any meaningful way. So a great way to do that was pretend that he's a traitor and he's in the pocket of Russia and pretend as if Russiagate was his big thing. He's not there anymore, so they can't do that. And now when Biden does things like actually act more conciliatory towards Russia, they have to basically walk away from that and pretend that all that Russiagate stuff didn't really happen. Now, there still is this drive to have a confrontation with Russia. Biden still will feel the pressure. I don't think that what he does will be more confrontational towards Russia than Trump, because again, I just don't think you can get more hawkish in reality than what the policies of the Trump administration were. Perfectly well said. Um, I have another question regarding to what Jackie covered earlier about Syria, but it's more of a combination with Russia as well. Why has there been such disinformation passed around in media regarding Russia's role in fighting ISIS, 
as well as the United States' involvement with NATO and the UN contributing to the demise of Syria. Yeah, well, let me say, too, and I should have said this before, when we're talking about Russiagate and the reasons behind it, McCarthyism, I think there's a Syria tie here as well, because one of the things that Trump was successful at in 2016 when he campaigned was pretending that he was anti-intervention. He posed sort of as this opponent of the Hillary Clinton model of destroying Libya and destroying Syria. And he talked about how our policies actually aided al-Qaeda, and he talked about ending that. And so I think part of the reason why you had Russiagate, I can't prove this, but I'm just speculating, is because there was an effort by members of the national security state to not just undermine whatever Trump might do to roll back the Syria dirty war, but I think more importantly, to sort of taint his rhetoric. So when they saw that his anti-interventionist rhetoric, and again, I'm stressing rhetoric because in reality, Trump did nothing of what he actually said he would do. He actually was just as hawkish as those he pretended to oppose, if not more hawkish policy-wise. But a, a good way to taint that is to say, that, oh, all this is the work of Vladimir Putin. He's taking orders from Vladimir Putin. And if you promote anti-interventionist rhetoric, if you question the Syria dirty war, if you question the CIA, then you're just in the pocket of Putin. So I, I think that Syria actually played a role in Russiagate too. And the reason why it's caught on in the media is because our media has done the bidding of the national security state. The reporting on Syria is among the worst reporting in U.S. history. I had a, a journalist who I really respect, a, a veteran journalist who whose work I really admire, tell me recently, he said, now it's easier now to talk in the US media about Israel, to criticize Israel, than it will be to tell the truth about Syria. And I think that will be the case in the same way that we always learn like 20 years down the line about what evil the CIA did back during the dirty war in Nicaragua, or you know before that, you know in the 1970s in Chile, for example, you can go on and on. We'll learn more and more as the years go on. And at that point, discussion will open up. But right now you have just this amazing propaganda assault on the U.S. people in which so many U.S. media outlets were complicit to whitewash this criminal dirty war where we were told we were arming moderate rebels. But look, it's just a complete fiction and nobody blew it up better than Joe Biden himself. There's a clip of him speaking to Harvard from 2014 or 2015. I forgot, remember, but he says our biggest problem in Syria was our allies, Qatar. No, sorry, he didn't say Qatar, but he meant Qatar. But he said Saudi Arabia and Turkey, who flooded Syria with tens of thousands of, of weapons and fighters. And mostly he said this benefited al-Qaeda. Biden then apologized for that because he had ran his mouth. He had said too much, but he, he was right. And the U.S. media has done so much to obscure that. And the reason it's caught on is because the propaganda has been so effective. I have to admit, I was duped by some of the propaganda at first a while ago because, you know, it's hard to go against a narrative where you're told that it's a people rising up, you know, in mass nonviolent ways to oppose an authoritarian government. It was a completely deceptive picture. Of course, there were protests against the Syrian government that were against corruption, demanding reforms. Syria is an authoritarian government. People wanted democratic reforms. But the problem is those protests were conflated with a very expensive and very well-planned dirty war that involved all the biggest powers in the world. And that dirty war benefited and armed jihadist contras, death squads like Jaysh al-Islam and ISIS and al-Qaeda who came in from around the world. A lot of them weren't even Syrian. You know, There were people coming in from all around the world to wage jihad. And that's what, what was the reality of the dirty war. And that's what the media whitewashed in trying to pretend as if these were all moderate rebels fighting for freedom. And when the Syrian government fought back against that, their self-defense of their own country was criminalized and portrayed as this just genocide campaign against peaceful protesters. It wasn't. It was a war to defend their own country. And it was a war no different than when the U.S. destroys Raqqa or Mosul to wipe out ISIS. The difference, actually, is that Syria is doing it within its own borders, uh, whereas the U.S. is in Iraq and Syria, thousands of miles away from its own territory. 
So the propaganda was incredibly successful and we will not know, I think, the full story. And there certainly won't be the freedom to honestly discuss it, I think, for many years. So in the meantime, it's people like us who are willing to just be honest about it who have to fill the void. Speaking of the freedom to discuss things, lately, the Biden administration, at least, has started coming down on people who basically don't toe the line with the narrative that the mainstream media wants everyone to believe, or at least that the mainstream media has adopted in relation to not just foreign policy, but even internal policy. Like apparently they've started going after basically voices of dissent who try to tell people a different narrative, which is interesting because this is the information age and they are tamping down on information that they don't want out. Do you think that we'll ever have a return to actual journalism the way we used to? (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, you know, I I don't want to be a pessimist as to say never, but like imagine, for example, people like Robert Fisk or Seymour Hirsch being allowed to exist now at a mainstream newspaper. Someone who's able to tell the truth about our foreign policy. I can't Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Like I I feel like once the there's no getting out of real information, that's like a slide right into fascism because nobody can really stop it. You can't nobody knows what's really going on once that's complete. Absolutely. I mean look to me the most striking illustration of the power of our propaganda system right now is not even our mainstream media, but it's our leading so-called adversarial outlets. So if you look at The Intercept, for example, which has all the money in the world funded by a billionaire, no constraints from advertisers, so all the freedom it wants to do, to do whatever it wants. On all the issues that require some minimal courage and actual adversarial reporting, they've, instead of challenging the establishment line, they've promoted it. So Russiagate, their editor-in-chief, Betsy Reed, is a diehard Russiagator. Uh, she said that there are zillion connections between Trump and Russia and that the Mueller report proved that there was soft, loose collusion. Okay, so that's the editor of our leading adversarial site buying into the biggest national security state scam in recent memory Uh, on the Syria dirty war as well as well. The Intercept completely fell for the CIA line and continues to do so. A great illustration is look at their coverage of the OPCW whistleblowers, which amounts to zero. Literally more than two years since the OPCW leaks emerged, the Intercept has not acknowledged the existence of those leaks or of the whistleblowers. And making that even more shameful is that prior to that, they published something like five articles promoting the pro-war narrative on that incident in Duma. And since then, They haven't found the time or the interest to cover this story. And you look at Democracy Now! as well, where I used to work, which to me, you know, although, you know, we weren't perfect, but I think Democracy Now! really set a good standard for so long in adversarial journalism. And in the last few years, I'm sorry to say, they fell for Russiagate and they fell for the Syria dirty war. And I don't think it's because these places are corrupt. I think it's because our propaganda system is just so effective that it induces people to go along with the party line, not for any immediate benefit, but just because people internalize the fact that if you challenge these core narratives that are so important to the establishment and that are basically deemed to be a red line, which is basically what the gray zone does, like we go to the stories that other people are too afraid to touch. People get the message that if you cover the story honestly, then you're going to be cast out. You're going to be called an Assadist. You're going to be called uh, a Russian operative. You're in the case of the Young Turks. You're going to be uh, accused of working for Russia. And people just internalize the consequences. And out of cowardice and out of wanting to be a part of a club, uh, this, this subconsciously, I think this happens, they just go along. 
And it's been crazy for me to see. I've never seen anything like it where you have even our so-called adversarial media being so co-opted by the establishment narratives that they should be challenging. It's pretty extraordinary. And by the way, Democracy Now! too, when it comes to the LPCW story, when the leaks first came out, they did one segment and their guest was a guy, this guy, Brian Whitaker, who's a uh, whitewasher of the Syrian dirty war. And so his contribution to the story on Democracy Now! was to completely minimize it. And then later on, a couple months, uh, half a year later, he then doxed one of the whistleblowers. He published his name, which was a very malicious act. So that's Democracy Now!'s coverage of the story. Uh, Interviewing one guy who downplayed it and then doxed one of the whistleblowers. Haven't revisited it since. It's um, it's crazy. What are, you, what are your thoughts on uh, TYT's coverage of this, specifically when Anna and Jake had on a guy who was never in Syria, and he was their journalist to really de- debunk and talk about really the OPCW, of course, as well as the whistleblowers. What are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like when you bring out that type of misinformation with not enough sources cited, it makes it very difficult for journalists like yourself to really combat those narratives and to spread out the message for the masses. I think you meant middle-aged McCarthyites. I'm sorry. Yes. The name now. <laughs> yes, thank you, Jackie. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I met the middle-aged McCarthyites. Thank you for that correction. So the TYT guest, aka the middle-aged McCarthyites, he actually has been in Syria. He basically embedded with the uh, insurgents and the white helmets, which is interesting because at the same time as like Western journalists were being tortured in like the basements of Aleppo, this guy was running around embedded with some of the insurgents, which uh, I don't know, uh, might say something about the quality of his reporting. And who he was useful for. But anyway, yeah, he so yeah, but, but he has been in Syria, but he's done a grand total of zero journalism on the OPCW scandal, except for four paragraphs in an article. He's done, so he's written four paragraphs about this issue. But for some reason, the uh, DYT brought him on for a 40 minute segment trying to explain why there's nothing to see here, why the whistleblowers are wrong. And in the process, he basically tried to refute the whistleblowers and also the expert toxicologists who they consulted. And it was hilarious. And I, I did a segment debunking his appearance with Jimmy Dore. People can watch that if they're interested. But it was so funny. And it obviously, the reason they did this was, was very obvious. So they've never covered this story before. And this is now a three-year-old story, this alleged incident in Duma. But the reason they did this was obvious because they lied about me. They claimed that I'm paid by Russia and Anna accused me of working for dictators and denying the killing of children and chemical attacks. And so they were humiliated and people were laughing at them. And instead of just apologizing, they decided to, to double down. Uh, and they doubled down in many ways. They concocted this fake sexual harassment allegation against Jimmy Dore. And then in like an attempt to own me, they brought on this guy trying to like actually prove that why the OPCW scandal is really, really like not a big deal and that the whistleblowers are wrong. And what's funny is even though they're obviously doing this to try to discredit me, they don't actually address anything that I've written, anything that I've said. And instead they do this very like carefully crafted segment trying to like show why the whistleblowers and the experts they consulted are wrong. But of course, you know, as I talked about with Jimmy Dore, they left out so much. And and it was so embarrassing that they even let this guest feed them fake talking points. So one of this guest's ideas in his head, because he's not very well informed, was that the OPCW actually contradicted the U.S. narrative. And so really, in his mind, the OPCW report was not a whitewash because it actually, in his mind, undermined the U.S. Because in his, in his telling, the U.S. said it was a sarin attack, but the OPCW said it was a chlorine attack. So if that were true in his mind, then the OPCW went again the U.S. But in reality, as I showed, the U.S. always said it was a chlorine attack. They put out a statement saying it was a chlorine attack, and it also also might have also been a sarin attack. But they said from the start that it was chlorine. And what the guest and what the Young Turks admitted is that, according to the OPCW uh, whistleblowers, there was even a meeting at the OPCW where a U.S. delegation was brought in, and the delegation 
uh, told the inspectors why they thought it was a chlorine attack. And this was really unusual. And some of the inspectors took this as basically an attempt to interfere with their investigation because you're not supposed to bring in U.S. officials to meet with inspectors face to face. The inspectors are supposed to be protected, having their privacy protected. It's OK to share information if you have it. But to have this face to face briefing, it was an obvious act of information. So this guest fed the Young Turks this talking point. And so Jenk then asked a question based on that. And it is, it's like he goes, so uh, it's been said that the OPCW went along with the U.S. narrative. But is that true? And the guest proceeds to answer. So it's like if Jank had just fact-checked his talking point that he was fed, he would have seen that the premise of it was false. But they didn't do that because they're not journalists. And they're obviously driven here by some childish thing where they were trying to own me and they're trying to really, they really want to whitewash this dirty war, I guess. And they really want to prove somehow that I'm wrong. So it leads to embarrassing things like this. And it just, it speaks also to how degraded journalism has been. Because look, I would never go on a show and speak for 40 minutes about a topic that I've done zero journalism on, right? Especially when it's, you're talking about something as complicated as chemical weapons, you know, chemistry, physics, all this stuff like that. This guy has done zero journalism and he's allowed to go on the Young Turks and speak for 40 minutes and pretend to be some kind of authority who can speak with some like expertise to debunk the OPCW's veteran inspectors and the expert toxicologists who they consulted. It's such a joke. And it speaks to just how degraded our journalism has become in the Russiagate era, where it's like, you say whatever you want, as long as it goes along with the establishment narrative. And you can completely humiliate yourselves and have no self-awareness that you're speaking on a topic you're clueless about. And it doesn't occur to you that maybe before I speak on this topic, I should produce some actual journalism on it. But it doesn't occur to these people because they're not serious people. They're not journalists. So you're saying to TYT and Rachel Maddow are siblings. <laughs> I'm absolutely saying that. I'm absolutely saying that. You know? Yeah, Rachel, yeah. What was that? someone said uh, it was a court. It was it was a court that came out and said that um, no one would reasonably consider Rachel Maddow a journalist. Basically, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's that was brought in a case against. Uh, so there was a case against Maddow where she basically she called this right wing news site literal Russian propaganda. And the defense from MSNBC's lawyers is that her audience knows that it's just an opinion show. She's actually reporting the news. And look, when I when I've spoken to lawyers about suing TYT, you know, I'll I'll I'll, I'll break this news to you. I haven't talked about this yet, but th- they said the same thing to me that to make this case actionable, that TYT will most likely invoke that defense. So the question for me is, do I want to go through this long legal process just to result in them invoking the same claim as Maddow? Because it, I think TY, no one considers TYT to be a serious news outlet, as far as I know. So I think it's quite likely that they would invoke a very similar defense. Did, I mean, the problem is it's completely like they would completely have that defense because they used to do like celebrity camel toe yeah. thing. Yeah. They can easily yeah. like, and right now half of their videos are still on Trump. He's not in office anymore. Yeah, of course. So I feel like that defense is just like the truth. They're not journalists yeah. and it's easy to tell just by watching them. Yeah. And what's amazing about them, you know, it, it's a fascinating psychological study into how entitled you can become once you get $20 million from Jeffrey Katzenberg, which is the case of the middle age McCarthyites. And, get a you know really fancy studio where you can say all these things like they said about me without any evidence and then also get into their heads that they're actual authorities on journalism. So they've just did this thing attacking Glenn Greenwald because Glenn criticized their McCarthyite smearing of me and Jimmy Dore. And Jank is saying that now he doubts all of Glenn Greenwald's journalism. Glenn, who's won the Pulitzer for exposing the NSA, for exposing the plot to imprison Lula in Brazil. So now Jank is now 
doubting all that too because Glenn had the temerity to criticize Jenks' uh, lies about me. And there's another clip I saw recently of Anna Kasparian talking about Ronnie Akalik, who's a journalist who's done work with the Gray Zone. She's now with an outlet called Breakthrough News. She's reported on the ground in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria. Really good journalist. I personally, I learned a lot from Rania especially about Syria. She's like really, really good. And Anna Kasparian is talking about her and she says that, oh yeah, you know, uh, Ronnie Akalik, you know, I've seen some of her stuff. She has, she needs to uh, check her facts more. And it's just like, who are you in this air-conditioned Los Angeles studio who does no journalism of your own, embarrasses yourself constantly when you lie about people and then try to make up for that with by smearing uh, people like Jimmy Dore and then bringing on fake guests like they did in the case of the OPCW to then opine on a, a journalist who actually does reporting on the ground. It's like, uh, it, it's a fascinating psychological study, like just the way they behave. Yeah, they TYT yeah. is the TMZ of politics of news they're not they don't actually care about real stories that actually affect people if so they would have been they would have had you on to break the opcw and instead they decided to lean harder into serious slash russiagate yeah um i have i know we only have you for a couple more minutes i have two more questions to try to throw in there um the first one being well actually it's just the main one speaking of like whistleblowers what do you think is going to happen to people like assange and snowden do you think they'll ever be freed be allowed to come home in the case of snowden be like what do you think is going to happen with julian assange's case because i've heard that um with last week last week or this week someone came out and said that basically the entire case they have against him is based on lies but i still don't have the confidence that that means that he'll be freed what do you think oh absolutely it came out recently in an Icelandic newspaper that a key witness in the case against Assange admitted that he fabricated a lot of his claims. So look, the case against Assange was already ridiculous to begin with. Huge affront to press freedom. The US has no right to try to lock up Assange for doing journalism and to torture him for over a decade and keep him behind bars. But the case itself, just on on the merits of the case, like the facts of it, were shown to be fabricated by a key witness. And of course, has the US mainstream media even acknowledged this fact? No, of course not. So in terms of what will happen, it really depends on us. You know, it really depends on on what what people in this country will do. Assange has been so successfully demonized, so successfully demonized that it's really hard to build public support for him right now in the U.S. I mean, we saw that with Russiagate, where he was portrayed as this Russian asset and uh, and all the claims about him, accusing him of being a rapist when he was never accused even of rape. He was never even accused of anything. He was wanted for questioning in a really dubious case that Niels Meltzer, the U.N. Special Rapporteur on torture just showed to be a complete fraud in Sweden that was basically brought by Swedish prosecutors. The first prosecutor tried to drop it, but then it was revived and it was based on just a series of fabrications. And again, he was never even charged. They just wanted him for questioning. And they basically, I think in concert with the US, dragged that out for over a decade to keep Assange locked up and keep him in legal jeopardy and put him in a position where he could be extradited to the U.S. So in terms of what will happen, it really depends on us breaking the propaganda wall around Assange and trying to get the public on side with what's right with, you know, in defense of press freedom and in defense of a hero. I mean, what he's done is is, is heroic. And so, you know, um, I will say that it's just really, really hard in this country because our media is so corrupt. And instead of defending Assange, they've taken part in demonizing him. And there's been a couple, you know, outlets have spoken out against the press freedom aspect of this, but they could be covering this way more. They could be, for example, covering the collapse of the witnesses' testimony, but they don't because our media is so co-opted. And with Snowden, too, 
I think Snowden is a bit less demonized than Assange. And uh, I mean, who knows? I mean, it really depends on, on what we can do as the public. But, you know, we're up against a big propaganda barrier that is very, very hard to penetrate. I mean, look how many progressive outlets got duped into demonizing Assange, you know, going back to the Middle Age McCarthyites. You know, when, when the Guardian put out this fake story that Assange met with Manafort in the Ecuadorian embassy, TYT did a story about what a damning thing this was about Assange and how it shows that he's in line with Trump. I mean, people are just dupes. And that's, that's a major problem. It makes it very hard to convince people uh, to defend Assange when, you know, even the progressive outlets are going along with the attempt to demonize him. Do you think that perhaps that people see the treatment of people like Snowden, Manning and Massage and, and Assange, and that's why uh, someone like Democracy Now! or The Intercept has kind of shied away from like, do you think it's like association of... I do. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a major factor. I think that that, that kind of... Uh, flack impact where you see that someone's someone is deemed to be toxic by the establishment so you just you, you don't want to have to deal with being accused of being an apologist for them or defending them so you just don't go there and that's look and with 2016 and, and assange being blamed for trump it just became very easy for people to sell him out this to throw him under the bus and it required just a, some intellectual courage that some people don't have to look past all that and to see the real forces at play it's it's just, it's so easy look i mean we see this all the time it's so easy to sell someone out when it threatens your interests, you know, we've all experienced maybe like that kind of choice. Like, do I, do I throw this person under the bus or not? You know what I mean? With, with Assange, they just demonize them so much that it's just for people who lack, you know, a real commitment to progressive values and to the facts. They just became, he became more expendable. Same thing with Syria too. It's just like, you see what happens to people who dissent from the party line. They get deplatformed. They get accused of being paid by Russia. They get called Assadists. You know, I've experienced some of it uh, since I started covering the OPCW story. But for me, look, from, from, in my case, I came very late to the Syria thing. Syria's been going on for over a decade. So I came way late in the game. There are people who've been covering this way before me who were subjected to huge abuse, way worse than I faced. And in my case, it's a lot easier for me to defend myself because it's the OPCW story is just so... It's backed up by so many indisputable facts. With the rest of Syria, you know, you can make up all these allegations and there have been so much, there's so much propaganda. It's harder to pierce through. In the case of the OPCW investigation, anybody who looks at the facts, the censored reports, the cover up of the investigation, the evidence that was left out. I mean, it, it's all there. So it's harder for them to go after me. And anybody who looks at the story, I think, has a hard time not realizing what a huge deception this was. But uh, they make it very, very difficult just to do uh, honest reporting. In the case of the gray zone, I mean, my colleagues have faced harassment way before me. Like when Max Mullenthal wrote, uh, wrote the story about the white helmets, people were calling him and threatening him physically. He just, uh, him and Ben Norton, uh, my gray zone colleagues, they just defeated this insane lawsuit brought by this entitled heiress who got her money from basically uh, funds stolen from the Iranian government. And she teamed up with this neocon law firm in DC to sue the gray zone because they criticized her fake reporting. She had reported on Twitter and put up video claiming that Iran was launching missiles into Israel. Okay. And it was a fake, it was, it, it was fake video. And so the gray zone, and this was part of a pattern of her basically using these fake sources in Lebanon who had duped her to make these insane claims about Iran and Hezbollah. So the gray zone did an article just pointing out how insane this was. And of course she had to delete those videos and say that she had been misled. And in response to that, her and her neocon law firm sued the gray zone on the grounds that people on Twitter, okay, not even with the gray zone, who the gray zone doesn't even know, had called her a Mossad agent, okay? And so based on her insane case, the gray zone was somehow responsible for random people on Twitter calling her a Mossad agent. And the case took like two years and a lot of hearings and a lot of, and it was promoted by all these prominent media people, Jonathan Chait, Jake Tapper, and other neocons 
promoting it. It just got laughed out of court, but it took a long time and energy. And that's just, that's just one example of the kind of flack you face when you dissent from the party line. And we all, you know, different outlets have their own experience with that. You guys, I'm sure, have faced your own version of, uh, of being smeared. It's just, that's what happens when you have integrity. It's just, and it's, it's, I've never seen a situation like this though, where it's even the bigger dissenting websites like democracy, outlets like democracy now and the intercept are so co-opted by the establishment. And so it's left to people even more in the margins to actually do the job of real adversarial journalism. I guess my last question for you is based on this latest revelation with uh, Tucker Carlson claiming the NSA has been spying on him. And he referenced in his show, uh, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, a frequent guest of his, really introducing his audience to really more left-wing type of politics. And Glenn Greenwald is known specifically for being really against these type of NSA and intelligence communities measures. And because he did say that, yes, the NSA, in terms of the intelligence community, they can spy, but they can't actually release your private information public. So what are your thoughts on uh, this situation? Yeah, it's crazy. So I might not have the exact details because I haven't followed it too closely. So Tucker Carlson came out and said that the NSA was spying on him. Everybody laughed at that, right? The prevailing reaction was to make fun of him. Then the story got confirmed. Axios just confirmed that, yes, he was swept up in an NSA surveillance operation. And now the story is that he's accused of communicating with people who were trying to help him set up an interview with Vladimir Putin. Uh, Tucker Carlson wanted to interview Vladimir Putin. And so in the process of trying to do that, to be introduced with Putin's representatives, he he was swept up in an NSA dragnet. Now, we don't know, like, I don't know exactly who the target was here. Was Tucker Carlson being monitored or he swept up when somebody communicating with Tucker Carlson got involved who's in Russia? So we don't know the full details yet, but the fact that a journalist could be surveilled for trying to set up an interview with a foreign leader. And then the fact that this information was being used to to basically try to smear him because according to Tucker Carlson, again, I can't vouch for the veracity of this, but the reason he knew about this is because he was uh, contacted, he says, by a whistleblower in the government who said that someone was going to leak this information in a bid to try to undermine him. So the fact that his name was disclosed publicly, the fact that this whistleblower felt compelled to go to him to say this does show here that there was at least this effort by someone. It likely shows, I should say, it likely shows that there was an effort by someone to try to use the fact that Tucker Carlson was caught up in this to try to smear him. For what? Trying to interview a foreign leader? And the fact that this has now come out and there isn't more outrage over this and there isn't more sort of contrition from people who are making fun of this story, it again speaks to what we've been talking about, how normalized it's become to criminalize journalism. And as long as you invoke the specter of Russia, this evil bad guy who we're supposed to all hate, then any kind of possible illicit or illegal activity by our own government is just accepted. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird. I, I actually want to thank you for not being a partisan hack like a lot of people <laughs> and like pointing out things that happen both on the right and the left, because I've noticed that a lot lately where people assume like you have to stay in your niche. You're on the left, so you have to call out only the right. You're on the right, so you have to call out the left. That's not actual journalism. That's bullshit. You're supposed to call out anything you see, no matter who does it, right or left. So thank you for not being a partisan hack. Well, thanks. And listen, but but I want to say, so from the point of view of Democrats or Republicans, I'm certainly not a partisan hack, but I am a partisan for what I feel is the actual left, right? I am. And to me, the actual left should have no tolerance for any kind of Western chauvinism. 
and jingoism. And that's what Russiagate was. It was worshiping the FBI and the CIA who've been waging war on oppressed people at home and around the world throughout their entire existence. And so from a partisan point of view of defending the actual left, there was no way I was going to go along with that. On top of the fact that just from a point of view of being a journalist, we have to follow the facts, no matter who it might serve. And politically, right. politically, I always thought it was a disaster and a huge gift to Trump and the Republicans for his opposition to be turned into a bunch of deranged conspiracy theorists, convinced that the biggest problem with him is that he's an agent of Russia and that once we find the collusion smoking gun, all the problems are going to go away. That's a huge gift to Trump. And it's a disaster for the left. Like I liked Bernie Sanders. I was excited by his candidacy, but I wasn't like a diehard Bernie guy. He's obviously got, he says many things I don't agree with, but I did want him to win. And look what happened. Russiagate was used against him too. You know, when he was in the 2020 primary, they Russiagated Bernie, right? Of course they were going to do that because Russiagate was never about a real challenge to Trump. It was about protecting the privilege and power of a very narrow set of elite interests, the neoliberals and people in the national security state who didn't see Trump as a suitable steward of the U.S. war machine. So, you know, it's true that from like a a political, like Democrat, Republican, I'm not a partisan, but I am a partisan for the left. And I refuse to accept the left that like tolerates things like smearing people as Russian assets and that uses leftist spaces to promote dirty wars and national security state scams like Russiagate. I just, you know, that's not the left I want to be a part of. Awesome. Thank you very much. We'll go ahead and end on that note. Thank you for joining us and tell people where they can find you, please. Thegrayzone.com. Awesome. I thought it was going to be way longer than that. (laughs) (laughs) Most people like launch into this whole like, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again for coming on. And I really need to find a way to end these things because I just, (laughs) <laughs> I need to stop talking. <laughs> Guys, thank you. And I, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. You're someone I admire. I've watched a lot of your shows. I love Pushback with Aaron Matei, and you're someone I respect. I was very nervous, so thanks for hanging in there with me. <laughs> no uh, I really appreciate you. I really appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Thank you. If you like this episode, do us a favor. If you're listening through Apple, give us a five-star rating or any other app. Drop us a like. And don't forget to subscribe so that you can hear new episodes when they come out. Thanks.